Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the Loving Liberty program. All right, let's jump right in here. I'm, I want to get to the uh, to the stuff that's most likely to get me in trouble first. So here goes. So Iran apparently has shot down a U.S. surveillance drone, a military surveillance drone. Okay, this wasn't uh, this wasn't an example of you know somebody just uh, hey, I wonder what the Iranian coast looks like. And this is the part that bugs me. I know you're going to think I'm a terrible American for pointing this out, but the provocation in my mind is the U.S. sending warships, sending planes, sending drones, sending threats, laying down sanctions. And when a drone comes too close to Iran, Iran responds by shooting it down. I mean, they've been backed into a corner and and now the U.S. is saying, oh, look at us. We're the victims. Our government is claiming to be the victim. It's like it's like the bully suddenly got a punch in the nose and now is is saying, well, you know, now I have to absolutely destroy you because, you know, you punched me. It troubles me to see my government not standing on the moral high ground. In fact, not anywhere near the moral high ground, as far as I can tell. And I don't know that it's the news media's, you know, responsibility to to question and really, um, you know, vet the information that, that is being released by the Defense Department. I have a perception, and I could be wrong with this, but sometimes I feel like the 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 media serves more like a lapdog than a watchdog. It's a stenographer's pool. And when the Defense Department or the White House or or some branch of the government hands them a press release, okay, this is what we're supposed to say, folks, and off it goes. I do take comfort in the fact that there are more people questioning this this narrative. Oh, Iran is the uh, aggressor here. Iran is the one, you know, causing all the problems. It's funny, too, because uh, a lot of the memories, at least of U.S. politicians, the ones who are stumping for some kind of military action against Iran, conveniently only go back about uh, 40 years. Remember the hostage crisis? Do you remember the, uh, you know, took took hostages after the uh, Iranian uh, revolution? When the Ayatollahs came to power, they deposed the Shah of Iran. And that's that's where we that's where our memories stop. Well, why would they do that to us? See, and to get the answer to that, you have to go back another 26 years. And then you get this great big clue about what what kind of beef does Iran have with the U.S.? And the answer is, well, in 1953, something called Operation Ajax took place. And it was the deposing of the democratically elected president of Iran, Mossadegh, taken out of office by the British and American intelligence agencies and the Shah of Iran installed as the the dictator. Now, here's the thing. There's a disconnect because people will say, well, now, Brian, he he was friendly toward the West. The Shah loved us, and he did. I mean, he was more or less handpicked by U.S. and British policymakers to, to be the guy they wanted in power. It doesn't make him any less a dictator. Sometime, if you're interested, 
If, if you want to dig a little bit deeper, I would encourage you, just Google the word Savak, S-A-V-A-K. That's the name of the secret police force that was founded under the Shah. Read about what Savak, what life under the Savak, you know, agency was like. It was very ugly. But even more important than that, our government actively worked to depose a democratically elected leader. Now, I don't know what kind of a president Mossadegh was. Um, my understanding is he was nationalizing, you know, the oil fields. British Petroleum at the time was like, no, 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 this is our oil. But doesn't that put just a little bit more perspective? Even if it doesn't make you see Iran as, as good guys, at least you can understand that any resentment they may have felt, any blowback that may have resulted in the deposing of the Shah and the taking of American hostages in 1979, wasn't just out of the blue or they're a bunch of, you know, religious fundamentalist fanatics who just hate freedom and everything that uh, America stands for. I mean, I'm not saying it was the right thing to do. But it does put a little bit different light on how America was just minding its own business and suddenly out of nowhere, these guys started acting like a bunch of jerks. That's not the case. These people had their country, their government stolen from them. Remember Saddam Hussein? Do you, do you recall there was a time when he was our guy? Yeah, yeah, he was an evil you-know-what, but he was our evil you-know-what because he was opposed to Iran. And so when Saddam Hussein started a war with Iran in 1980, the U.S. was backing him. Yeah, shame we had to go in there about 10 years later and, you know, hand him his head on a platter. All right, what's my point? My point is simply this. It's extremely disingenuous for the U.S. government to play the victim when they have been intervening and provoking and, and essentially just acting like the, the, the strong man drunk at a bar who's going around bullying people and suddenly finds that someone is willing to stand up and fight back. I think it was back in 2000 when Pat Buchanan was, uh, was running for president. He offered a warning. And he talked about the price of global gamesmanship. These are his words. He said, how could all of our meddling fail to spark some horrific response? Now, keep in mind, we'd seen the, the I think it was the embassy in uh, Tanzania. Dar es Salaam. There was two, two bombings that took place right towards the end of the 1990s in Africa. Direct response to American meddling in places where it didn't need to be meddling. If this is the first you're hearing about it, well, guess what? That's how it is for most Americans. Why again was our government, you know, involved there? And Pat Buchanan's warning was, will it take some cataclysmic event on our own soil to wake us to the price of global gamesmanship? Now, keep in mind, this was this was a good year, year and a half before the 9-11 attacks. And just, I, I hate to even have to say this, but, but I want to make sure that nobody can misunderstand or misconstrue what I'm saying. It doesn't justify the murder of thousands of innocent people on 9-11. It doesn't justify the taking of hostages in 1979 in Iran. 
But when you understand that uh, the U.S. was not a blameless bystander, just innocently minding our own business, when out of nowhere these guys came up and started acting mean. Our government intervened. They destroyed people's lives. They're actively destroying people's lives as we speak. Trying to stop Iran's economy, prohibiting them from selling their oil, which they have plenty of oil. But when they're prohibited from selling it, prohibited from freely trading with with other people in the world. In fact, the U.S. is threatening sanctions against those nations that are typically friendly with us who have been buying oil from Iran. We're going to punish these people. We're going to starve them. Tell me how that serves the interests of the American people. How does that either protect our freedoms or defend us from some unwarranted aggression? Because I'm not seeing it. And the hard part is that once once the military gets involved, it's very easy for us to just, well, you know, the bombs are flying. Our boys are in harm's way. We have got to just, you know, line up, shut up. And when the fighting's done, that's when we'll talk about it. I don't know that that's an option. And, and I'm risking being very unpopular. I've, you know, I've been in this position before, so... It's not like this is unfamiliar territory, but in the build-up to Iraq, I, I couldn't get on board. My life would have been so much easier if I would have just shut up, got on board, and started waving the flag and saying, yeah, you know, go get them. But my conscience wouldn't let me, and it's not letting me be quiet about it now. And if I'm causing you discomfort, I'm sorry. I'm not doing it because I like to see people in discomfort. I'm not a, I'm not a sadist. I am your friend. And I'm someone who very much loves his country, but cannot abide the dishonesty and and the, the aggressive, lethally aggressive behavior that my government is engaging in against people who have never materially harmed me or my countrymen. Well, what about our countrymen who have uh, been on the receiving end of uh, improvised explosive devices or explosively formed projectile devices in Iraq? Yeah, it's tragic. And as painful as it is to acknowledge, we have to ask the question, why are they there in the first place? Because of lies and deceptions. We were told we have no other choice. We have to do this. Kind of like we're being told right now. We have to do this. I don't know what the answer is, but I know getting on board is just not an option. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. All right. The uh, House Committee on Un-American Activities has phoned me and asked me, would you just lighten up a little bit? Switch to decaf or something. All right, I'll consider it. I I just had to get this off my chest because I I see us on a collision course with another country for for reasons that that to me are, are very dubious at best and very immoral at worst. So... I'll try not to dwell on it too much, but I, I do feel better for having talked about it. By the way, if you want to weigh in, please feel free, 801-331-8113. As always, I acknowledge that uh, I could be completely wrong. I don't have all the answers. 
but something about this just doesn't seem to pass the sniff test. Let's talk about some other stuff here. By now, you've probably heard about the equality bill that uh, was passed by the House of Representatives. And it was passed, uh, you know, because it's controlled at this time by the Democratic Party, which is, well, they're all about equality. I want to share with you a commentary from Dr. Harold Pease. This is on his website, libertyunderfire.org. And he, do, he offers, I think, a very solid explanation of why that equality bill violates the Constitution. Now, this, is just not, this isn't just a matter of, you know, it, uh, it goes against my politics. By saying that it violates the Constitution, what he's saying here, and the case he makes is that it perverts the legitimate reason for which government even exists. And just in case we're a little bit, a uh, little bit, uh, you know, forgetful as to what what was that again? We're going to be celebrating this on July fourth. The Declaration of Independence spill, spells out the reason that our government was called into existence in the first place. Long story short, it's to protect our lives, our liberty, and our property, also referred to as the pursuit of happiness is to protect those natural rights that are ours. Not because they're granted to us by a bureaucrat, but because we are living, breathing human beings. Here's what Harold Pease says. He says, Neither the words equality or discrimination are found in the U.S. Constitution, nor are they inferred, and no new amendment to the Constitution has been added, moving either from a state to a federal prerogative which is the required path detailed in Article 5 for enlarging the powers of the federal government. State delegates formed the U.S. Constitution, and they gave the federal government no power over human association. People wonder about that, too. What do you you mean, human association? Simply put, it means it is not within the purview of the legitimate actions of the federal government to tell you who you must or who you must not associate with. That's a right that is yours to to make that choice all on your own. And at the risk of sounding a little bit radical for a moment, I'm going to go ahead and stick my neck out and say, and that includes if if for some reason that may seem absolutely irrational or even uh, hateful to other people, If you choose not to associate with somebody else or other somebodies for for whatever reason, as long as your behavior is peaceful, that's your choice. That absolutely should be your right. Because if we take that and remove it into the realm of government and say, oh, no, 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 government has a role and should step in and should should prevent you from making that kind of a choice, lest you make one that uh, is is, uh, unapproved, it opens up all of us. To forced association. It's one of the interesting thing about Jim Crow laws. You know, people will often refer to those. Well, you know, Jim Crow laws, you couldn't even drink from the same fountain. Couldn't use the same restrooms. Couldn't sit at the same lunch counters. Some people had to go to the back of the bus. And they're right. And all of those things were enforced by law. Meaning, even if a person who owned a particular establishment was okay with everybody using the restrooms or sitting at the lunch counter or drinking from the same drinking fountain or sitting anywhere on the bus where there was a seat available. By law, they were prevented from exercising their freedom of association. That's the downside. It's a double-edged sword. 
oh my gosh, you guys are going to accept this group or you're going to accept this particular movement? As long as government's doing it, there's, there's coercion being brought to the table. The better thing is let people choose. Let them, let them decide for themselves what their associations will be. When you force people into associations, you know what happens? That's where resentment begins to build. And it's in part because they're being forced, and it's also, you know, resentment towards whomever they're being forced to associate with. Come on, this is human nature. Let people make those choices on their own, and you watch. Prejudices melt away. I'll have to see if I can find it. There was a great article by Paul Rosenberg about a street on the city where he grew up that was just this incredible mix of different ethnicities, different religions, different colors of people, different backgrounds. And without any official government prodding, these people learned to live together. They learned to get along. Not that they were at each other's throats in the first place, but the bottom line is they were able to make that choice. And they chose it because it served everybody's interests. Not because there was a man with a gun and a badge waiting to take them to, to be punished. Dr. Harold Pease says, We naturally discriminate between philosophies, organizations, and people we wish to embrace, date, or avoid, even whom, we, whom or what we like. We call it freedom. Now the House of Representatives, presently controlled by the Democratic Party, wishes to impose upon us restrictions over human associations without a new amendment to the Constitution. Under the misnamed Equality Act, it wishes to enshrine sexual orientation and gender identity to the 1964 Civil Rights Act, outlawing discrimination respecting race or sex in employment, housing, and public accommodations. So what it does in practice is to allow the government to impose a belief system about sexual decisions and sexual behaviors on the nation. The act is basically government-sanctioned discrimination against religious people. Which I know there's a lot of folks who are actually okay with that. Well, you know, it's those Christians. It's those uh, the people who hold to their Judeo-Christian ethic. They're the ones trying to force their way on everybody. But strangely, they don't, they don't see what's happening bake that cake look if it's wrong for one group to force its way on on somebody it's wrong for everybody to do that and harold Pease says if government is empowered to manage human associations it manages everything so how would the misnamed equality act violate the constitution here's his explanation he says remember the founding fathers created a system called federalism which recognized the principle of dual sovereignty between the states and the federal government Neither the master nor slave of the other. The states have domestic dominance, the federal government foreign policy dominance. The Constitution restricts the federal government, the executive, legislative, and judicial branches, to the enumerated clauses housed in Article 1, Section 8. In this, it was restricted to four areas of federal law. These were to tax, to pay the debts, to provide for the general welfare, and national defense. And to restrict the federal government from enlarging its power, which its natural tendency is to do. The last two of the four grants of power, general welfare and national defense, each required an additional eight clauses, giving greater restrictive clarity. Neither equality nor discrimination were named in or inferred as a function of the federal government. The eight clauses of general welfare benefited citizens equally and all at the same time. 
None made distinctions between the types of people or human associations. All powers not specifically listed or added later to the Constitution by way of the amendment process outlined in Article 5 were left up to the states to decide. There exist no new powers to distribute. The states retain all power they did not specifically give to the federal government. The federal government can only expand its power at the expense of the states, either by distorting or ignoring or ignoring rather the existing list. And this can only be done when the people are ignorant of the Constitution or they simply don't care. Proponents of the Equality Act, unfortunately, include both groups. We'll come back to this in just a few moments. You have some thoughts? 801-331-8113. Back right after this. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. Without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Talking about the Equality Act passed by the Democrat-controlled House of Representatives. Not exactly a big surprise. I don't, I don't think anybody was shocked. Really? They passed that? What a, what a shock. No, I, I mean, come on. I, did I not see correctly that uh, like 233 out of 234 Democrats voted for this? They, they voted for the idea that uh, it's okay for guys who were born guys but are transitioning to female to take over women's sports. Now, that's equality. All right, but I digress. Harold Pease, Dr. Harold Pease, in his uh, article about uh, how this equality bill violates the Constitution, spells out how the powers of the federal government were carefully enumerated and limited. And this is important. States retain all the power they did not specifically give to the federal government. Unless you add something through a a constitutional amendment, the federal government can't expand its powers. And in this case, there is nothing that empowers the federal government to step into the realm of equality or discrimination. Those words are not within the Constitution. But even with this clarification, states, fearing that the federal government might still attempt to grow at their expense, refused to ratify the Constitution without additional restrictions. That's why we have the Bill of Rights. Dr. Peace says, but none of these housed either equality or discrimination. And the Bill of Rights end with the clarity of Amendment 10, which says, quote, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. So in a nutshell... The federal government could act within those powers that were clearly enumerated within the Constitution. I know we've had 200 plus years of legal sophistry to try to divine some kind of written between the lines message. Well, you know, I see I see that uh, there are there's subtext here that isn't plainly written. Thomas Jefferson would say, I see nothing but plain paper between the lines. But hey, go ahead, Mr. Hamilton. What else would you like to see? But neither equality nor discrimination are in the Constitution. They're not in the Bill of Rights. Now, the word equal can be found in the 14th Amendment. 
That was a Civil War amendment passed in 1968, or I should say ratified in 1968, and it was designed to ensure the rights of those slaves who were just freed would be protected as the South was attempting to re-enslave some of them just through legislation. And the 14th Amendment reads in part, No state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Now, you can't just pluck out this phrase and give it new meaning outside the context of its origin to protect freed men from slavery. And Dr. Pease says there's another problem with the broad use of the phrase equal protection of the law used out of out of context. See, this phrase applies only to that law already constitutional and that already has to have a solid base in the listed powers of Article one, Section eight or in a new amendment to the Constitution. Ratified by three-fourths of the states as required by Article 5. Any other interpretation destroys the Constitution as it was designed. And he says the great irony of our time is that the misnamed Equality Act creates grave inequalities between those who simply want to live according to their religious beliefs and the reigning culture of political correctness. In short, it threatens our most fundamental freedoms of speech, religious exercise, and privacy. He says the Equality Act upends two centuries of First Amendment law that restrains government from forcing Americans to speak messages or participate in events that violate their deeply held religious beliefs. So the bottom line here, according to Dr. Harold Pease, the Equality Act has no origin in the Constitution, thus it's unconstitutional. I know, I know, we need to shop this out to the right justices at the Supreme Court. Surely one of them, or maybe, you know, a majority of them, will find it is constitutional. I know we've been trained to think that, well, they're the ultimate uh, arbiters of what is the Constitution. But I disagree with that. You know who the final authority is on what the original intent of the Constitution was? It's the states and the people. Because they had to ratify the document. They were the ones who had to say, okay, yeah, this will work. We'll ratify it. We're in. The Supreme Court is a creation of the Constitution. It didn't exist until the Constitution called it into existence. How can the creature exceed its creator? Come on, you know the answer to this. It can't. As Dr. Harold Pease points out, this Equality Act opens up a myriad of new laws on human association, also without constitutional base. Neither equality nor discrimination can be defined and certainly not guaranteed without Orwellian government control. And maybe that's the intention. That's definitely the the direction I'm leaning. This isn't about righting a wrong. This is about imposing a solution. From the top down, I would liken it to Roe v. Wade. Now, what I'm going to say may surprise you, but uh, I think that's something that should have been left to the states. And I know full well there would have been states like New York, like California, like Virginia, that would very likely embrace abortion on demand. Maybe right up until the point of birth, as some states have recently been doing. Other states would have been free to say, nope, that's not going to fly here. And maybe they'd have differing degrees. Maybe some would say absolutely no abortion whatsoever for any reason. 
Some might say no abortion after a fetal heartbeat can be detected. And if it troubles you, well, how how could that be? How could there be states that have differing interpretations of what is acceptable and what isn't? Well, that's part of the beauty of federalism. It leaves these decisions in the hands of the individual states, not in the hands of the federal government, which wants to impose its top-down solution. And by leaving it in the hands of the states... If you find yourself in a state that uh, that doesn't doesn't toe the line in in a way that your conscience can accept, you can always go to another state. You are free to go. You're not being held captive. I think states would find out really quickly which policies work and which ones don't. The states that are bleeding people may want to rethink some of their policies. Let's go to the phone. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Hey, Brian, Sam calling. Good morning to you. Hi, Sam. Hey, uh, I just, one one thing that I keep continually pointing out to people when they uh, look to government, the federal government, to solve all these things, is for the same reason you don't want a world government. And that is, at least with the state governments, if you don't like the way things are going in your state, you can, if you're pressed hard enough, you can go ahead and pick up and move to another state. That's the beauty of it, because the states were supposed to be totally free and independent uh, republics and um, when you get everything under the umbrella one government making the decisions for everybody where are you going to go when uh, things go sour and you don't uh, you don't have any place to go i mean and that's i mean that's what uh, that's what the globalists want they want everything under a single global government okay once we have a global government where do you go that's a good question and that's why it's so important to uh, protect uh, the idea of decisions being made by the states as opposed to being made by the federal government. And we should be fighting for that instead because, uh, you know, you can always, if you don't like the way things are going, you can always uh, eventually arrange to pack up and go to another state. And there's no better illustration of that than some of these people that are uh, in these states where they're trying to force vaccines on people or uh, or another case where... Um, uh, parents, you know, have uh, maybe kids with seizures and they're giving them cannabis and uh, some states make cannabis illegal. Well, some of them parents just picked up and moved to states where it was legal so they could do it. And that's a tough choice to make. I mean, I, I have a good friend whose daughter was dying of a particular form of brain cancer. And uh, the, they were actually seeing some very favorable results with CBD and, and cannabis-based treatments but they ultimately had to choose. Do we need to relocate our family? Or, you know, if, if we obey the law, our daughter gets to die quicker. Yeah. That's a pretty tough exactly. choice to be put in. Well, and that's why I say that's, that, that's the absolute thing that we should be fighting for is to keep all these decisions within the states. Because in the original, uh, in the original formation of the federal government, the only thing that was supposed to do was to do what the states um, couldn't necessarily do for themselves, and that was for defense. But we see how things um, quickly uh, came out of that. And now look where we are now. I mean, we're the federal government, both sides of the aisle. I mean, it's not just one, it's both. So I, I hear I'll leave you. you with that, Brian. Thanks so much for the call, Sam. Great to hear from you. you bet. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back. This is Loving Liberty.
Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Whatever you do, don't you dare pick up your telephone and dial 801-331-8113. I don't want to hear about your thoughts on whatever has been brought up for discussion today. You got that? Do not call 801-331-8113. All righty then. It appears you've been reading the same book on reverse psychology that I've been reading. I'll move on. Hey, actually, keeping on on the theme of, uh, well, what if all the states have different uh, rules or different policies, different laws? I'm going to ask you, what's the big deal about that? Why shouldn't that be up to them? With the understanding that there are certain areas of overlapping interest, as our caller Sam pointed out, where the states decided we will cede or we will uh, more likely delegate a portion of authority to the federal government and say, look, you're supreme in these areas. But everything else will take care of the day to day governments, governance, rather. That's going to be our job. Because they're closer to the people and it just it makes sense. The government closer to the people is likely to be more responsive to the people. I think one of the clear illustrations of how this works are gun laws. The federal government really shouldn't be in charge of any gun laws at all. I know, I know there's, you know, going back to the. Uh, National Firearms Act of 1934 and the Gun Control Act of 68 and the Brady Bill. I'm sorry, now the Brady Law and the uh, various other firearms acts that they have imposed. These are likely illegitimate. And and it pains me to, to say what I'm about to say, but I believe this is part of the proper role of government. If states wish to be more or less restrictive with firearms, that's their prerogative. I know it's tough because I want to believe, well, no, those states really, they should, they should understand this. And and maybe it'd surprise you to know most of the states in their state constitutions actually take a very strong and decisive stand in support of the right to keep and bear arms. Now, some of them have qualifying language. My home state of Utah has that and, you know, says, except, you know, as the the legislature may, you know, they can, they can, the legislature can regulate it. But they do acknowledge that you have a right to keep and bear arms. Found an article by Benedict D. La Rosa. This is on the, found, the Future of Freedom Foundation website, fff.org. Background checks violate property rights. Some states require background checks for every single firearms purchase, private, or if you're buying it from a you know, dealer. Some don't. But have you ever considered how these background checks violate your, pro- your private property rights? I'm going to let Benedict LaRosa explain it. He says, in the early 1990s, I accompanied a friend and his 12-year-old son to a local gun show. My friend wished to purchase a 22 caliber rifle with which to teach his son to shoot safely and effectively. After much browsing, he found one at a reasonable price, one that suited both his needs and those of his son. The seller, a federally licensed firearms dealer, handed my friend an ATF Form 4473 to fill out. When my friend asked him why he had to fill out the form, the dealer answered that he could not purchase the weapon without doing so. And Benedict LaRosa says, at this point, I inserted myself into the conversation. I told the dealer that the restriction was not upon my friend, who was free to purchase firearms without filling out anything, but upon him. 
As a dealer, he had accepted a license from the federal government to engage in the business of buying and selling firearms and was thus subject to the terms of that license. One of the terms was that he could not sell them to anyone who didn't fill out the ATF Form 4473. In addition, the dealer has to keep the file on the form on file rather for inspection by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms or BATF. Same is true for the background check. It's imposed on the dealer as a condition of his license. Well, now the Democrat Party controlled U.S. House of Representatives has introduced a bill to force everyone to undergo a background check to sell, purchase, transfer, loan or otherwise exchange firearms which would require anyone wishing to do so to find a dealer and pay him to do the paperwork involved. Now, this is an added and unnecessary expense, especially for people living in rural areas where guns are borrowed, sold, or traded routinely, and where there may not be a licensed dealer within a reasonable drive. Such people would find it difficult, if not impossible, to comply. More important, Congress has no jurisdiction over the private property of individuals. Therefore, the requirements of that license cannot apply to them. Since the acquisition and disposal of property is a fundamental right, no one needs government permission to acquire or dispose of his legally acquired property. I like where he's going with this. And I know it makes some people uncomfortable when we talk about, well, a firearm is just a lawfully owned piece of private property. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you could kill somebody with it. Yeah, you could do that with your car, too. Yeah, well, we license and regulate cars. That we do. To the point where you don't really own your car. To the point where you pay tribute every year in the form of a registration tax for the privilege of using, in quotation marks, your car. But a firearm is just that. It's a tool. That's all it is. It's an inanimate piece of metal and plastic or metal and wood. And here's the real kicker. Nobody has any right to know exactly who has what and why. Now, for people with a controlling nature, what I'm saying is going to really sound harsh. Well, of course I have a right to know. I need to know what my neighbor has. Do you? State the moral authority by which you have to know what your neighbor possesses. Assuming that your neighbor is living peaceably... Assuming that he is not infringing upon your rights based on something that you don't even know what he may have in his dresser drawer or in his pocket. I fail to see how that's a violation of your rights. In other words, you don't have a right to to violate your neighbor's privacy. Mr. De La Rosa says if passed, this bill would set a dangerous precedent. For if government has the authority to impose a background check for guns... It can impose a background check to purchase, sell, transfer, or loan privately owned cars, cell phones, homes, or anything else. But he reminds us that our system of justice operates on a precedent. And this is why the question posed to all federal judicial appointees during their confirmation hearings is whether they will respect and uphold precedent. Because once a precedent is set... It's easy to expand the coverage of a law or pass similar legislation based on that precedent. Good example would be Medicare. It started as medical coverage for the elderly. Now try arguing against Medicare for all. The precedent was set by the first Medicare law. If the federal government has the authority to pass Medicare for some, well, then it has the authority to pass Medicare for all. (laughs) 
Excuse me. Same is true of gun laws. If the government can dictate under what conditions you may acquire and dispose of firearms, it can later use the same precedent to tell you how to acquire and dispose of any other piece of personal property. So far, background checks have done little, if anything, to curb gun violence. And you know the reason why. Criminals and those with criminal intent obtain guns regardless. They're not looking to do this all legal and proper. All background checks do is irritate legitimate buyers, raise the cost of gun ownership, encourage government usurpation, put buyers in legal jeopardy, and form the basis for gun registration, which inevitably leads to confiscation. So if the intent is to make it more difficult for prohibited persons to acquire firearms, it could be done easily without placing economic and other burdens on anyone or violating their rights. Right now, the check is done by the FBI through licensed dealers at the expense of the gun purchaser, with the purchaser's social security number exposed to strangers. Instead, the state could simply put the list of prohibited persons updated at its discretion on its website so that any person can determine who may purchase a firearm. Criminals wouldn't use the site any more than they would comply with a universal background check law. Law-abiding gun owners would gladly use this system because they have an incentive to keep firearms out of the hands of prohibited persons, for they may be their future victim. And although it hasn't stopped Congress from passing gun control legislation in the past, it's still important to understand and worth repeating that there is no authority in the U.S. Constitution for gun control under any pretext. But there is also a strongly worded prohibition against it in the Second Amendment. But until enough of us are willing to hold our elected representatives accountable for violating their oath of office and usurping authority, they'll continue to encroach upon our rights while making us pay for our own bondage. We would be wise to learn the lesson of history regarding precedents and usurped power. James Madison said the freemen of America did not wait till usurped power had strengthened itself by exercise and entangled the question in precedents. They saw all the consequences in the principle, and they avoided the consequences by denying the principle. That's good stuff. I'll have this posted in the show notes. Hour two of Loving Liberty is on the way next. Credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.